0: Hey, Block Kansas City, how are we living tonight? We doing good? Are hey, you guys ready to have some fun tonight? Good. Hey, guys, I am glad to be here with you all. Like Charlie said, my name is Nick Swearingen. Uh, I am one of the co-directors of the Block KC. I'm also a pastor here at Alexa Baptist, so we're just glad that you guys are coming out, and especially if you're new here, uh, like Charlie said, we're glad that you're here because we are starting a new series. We are uh, You could say we're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of starting a new series. We're about to start one. Uh, I'm I'm pretty excited for this series. It's, like Charlie said, called Footsteps of the Faithful. And we're going to be studying together the idea of faith and examples of faith in God's word, how to live out faith. And because faith is an abstract idea, I wanted to start by putting a simple definition of faith. Faith is simply putting our trust in something or someone. It's a really easy definition, putting our trust in something or someone. And here's an illustration for that, right? So about six months ago, I started getting into rock climbing, uh, climbing gyms specifically. It's a lot of fun. And for those of you who are not familiar with the climbing world, there's basically two types of climbing. There's climbing with ropes and a partner, uh, which is called being on belay. And there's soloing, which means you have no ropes and no partner. Uh, ironically enough, this doesn't really make sense, but because two of my four near-death experiences involve rope climbing, I'm not too big on rope climbing anymore. Uh, I'll tell you guys those stories at another point. But that means that I've started getting into what's called bouldering, and bouldering is where you go to a gym and there's about a, a story and a half tall wall, and there's all the different handholds and the footholds, and you just climb your way up, and then there's crash pads down below. And there's different routes that you have to accomplish and different levels. I've made it to about the lower intermediate level in six months, which I don't think is honestly that good, but it makes me feel good that I've made it that far. But something happened last week that I had not yet experienced in my time as a climber. When I was up on the wall, I froze and was unable to do absolutely anything for what felt like about a minute. And let me explain, let me paint some backstory for this. So every week, they make new routes, right? They, they take a section of the wall, then they have these climbers that will go and create these new routes. And normally, what I do when I go is that I watch the more experienced climbers solve the routes. so that way I don't have to figure it out myself, I can just watch them do it. Uh, it helps a lot. Uh, but this time, I was not paying attention. I was sitting there watching them, but I wasn't really focused on how they were solving these routes, And everything went pretty well at first when I got up on this route. And then I realized all of a sudden, I'm way up higher than I normally get. I'm like, this feels a little different. And then I start getting a little shaky in the legs and I'm like, I'm off balance and I just freeze. I mean, I cannot move. I can't make myself go forward. I can't make myself go back. And I realized, man, I don't believe in my own ability enough to make this next reach And I also don't trust the crash pads to fall all the way back down and catch me without getting hurt. And so because I had no faith in either my climbing ability or in the crash pads below, I froze. And I did not know what to do. And I bring this up because God's word says that we need to live by faith. And it's not in ourselves, right? It's not in our own abilities. We don't live by faith in the world around us to catch us. But we live by faith in God himself. And the issue is, is that the circumstances of life, all of us at some point, maybe you've experienced it at the past, maybe you're experiencing this right now, or maybe you will experience this in the future. But at some point, the circumstances of life will surpass your ability and the trust in your circumstances around you. And if you don't have faith in God, that will cause you to freeze. And if we're not careful, these moments, they'll cause us to lose focus on God. And this leads to all kinds of other issues. This leads to things like insecurity. This leads to things like anxiety, arrogance if we trust in ourselves, apathy, stress, and most importantly, disconnecting from the God who loves us and can help us navigate these situations. And so here in this room tonight, I recognize that we are all at different locations in our faith Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're here and you're just trying to figure out if God is someone that you'd want to follow, and we love that you're here. And this is going to be an example for you of, do you want to follow Jesus? Maybe you're here and you are a believer, but you're having questions about if God is trustworthy, and you're feeling like your faith is being tested. Maybe you're here tonight and you're feeling a little overconfident in life, like I was at the gym And uh, before you know it, you're going to find yourself frozen on the wall, unsure of where to go next. And so regardless of where we are at tonight, just like the climbing gym, we need examples that can show us, examples of people who have gone before that can show us the route of what it means to have faith in God. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Because God actually gives us these examples in Hebrews 11. It's known as the Hall of Faith. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Hebrews is near the end of the New Testament. You can go ahead and flip there now if you've got your Bible with you. Uh, If not, we've got uh, the the verses will be up on the screen. Um, It's right before James, if that helps anyone. Uh, You know, you can also just use the, what's the thing called? The table of contents? Is that what's in the front of books? Man, I cannot think of what that word is. Table of content, the index, index, thanks. Uh, man, I can't remember what books are called like that. But in Hebrews 11, God is going to give us a look into the lives of ordinary followers of God in the Old Testament. And these are gonna be examples of men and women who had put their faith or who had trusted in God in difficult situations, And our prayer over the next four weeks as we look at four different examples of faith is that these would serve as guides to help us navigate the challenges ahead so that our faith will be strengthened. And it's so important that we look at these examples of faith because a lot of times if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of think that our issues are like unique to us. You know what I'm saying? We kind of think, man, no one really knows what I'm going through. No one has really been through this before, so I just kind of need to figure it out by myself, and I just, I kind of need everyone to give me some space, but tying back into the climbing illustration, no pun intended, uh, man, can... we've got daily battles, y'all, we, we really do, and I'm not talking about not getting puns, but that is a daily battle. Let's be honest, guys, we, we have things that we know we can't solve ourselves, We've got issues that we need help and we need examples. And I think there's a lot of us that we want to trust God, right, but we're scared to let go of control. We wanna trust God, but we're not sure if he's trustworthy. And just like it's hard to let go and trust that the crash pads will catch you, in the same way, we have to understand that surrendering control to God is the best thing that we can do. And so we're gonna talk about these men and women as examples for us. Because we don't wanna step out in faith and then fall. We don't want to step out in faith and then be let down. It'll feel embarrassing, right? It'll, it'll hurt. And more importantly, it'll cause us to ask the question, man, is God really there? So we need to know what does it actually look like to trust God in faith if we're going to do this. And, and as we're reading these amazing stories of people in the Bible, I think the temptation can be, man, I, I don't think I could ever be like these people that demonstrate faith in the Bible. Right? Like these people are not like me. But we're gonna see that these people are ordinary people just like us. And more importantly, we're gonna see that faith, it depends more on the God we're trusting than the one who is doing the trusting. And so over the next four weeks, I want you guys to ask yourselves the questions. Do I believe God is faithful? Do I believe that I can trust him with my life and my circumstances? And what areas of my life do I need to grow in my faith? And with that in mind, let's look at our first example of everyday faith. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the example of a man named Abel. And we're going to be asking the questions tonight, what is faith and what does it look like in action? Let's pray and then we'll study God's word together. Heavenly Father, God, I I pray that tonight would be a night where you grow our faith. God, would the study of your word, uh, God, be something that challenges us to trust you more. Uh, God, I pray that no matter What's going on in this room and in our minds and in our hearts, God, would you allow us to focus on you? God, would you put the concerns of work and the concerns of finances and living situations and relationships aside, and we can just focus on you tonight, God, and ask ourselves the questions, what is faith and what does it look like if we're going to trust you, God? And so, God, I pray and trust that you want to do big things, God, and most importantly, I pray that people would hear from your word and not my words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, starting off in Hebrews 11, verses one through four. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. For by it, the people of old received God's commendation or God's reward. By faith, we understand that the worlds were set in order at God's command so that the visible has its origin in the invisible. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain and through his faith, he was commended as righteous, because God commended him for his offerings. And through his faith, he still speaks, though he is dead. And so before tonight, we look at Abel's life a little bit more in depth. Since we're sitting, setting up this series about faith, footsteps of the faithful, and answering the question, what is faith? We're going to take a moment and define faith from God's word. I love this in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It gives us an actual definition of faith. God actually gives us a clear definition of what faith is. God's word says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and being convinced of what we don't see. So it's being sure of what we hope for or certain of what we do not see. And then God actually proceeds to give us an example of each of those things. In verse two, it says that God's people received reward. And so we hope for a reward from God. And that's an example of something that we hope for. In verse 3, it says that although we did not see God create the universe, we believe in faith that God did create the universe. So we're sure that followers of Jesus will get a reward, and we hope, and we are confident in what we don't see that God created the universe, even though we didn't see that. And the question then is, for faith, anything that we're going to put our trust in, whether it's God or any other worldview or mindset, Or person or ideology or anything the question is for us what are we hoping for and what don't we see that is the question that we have to ask and for the christian for the follower of jesus if you're here tonight and you want to know what christianity is all about this is the ultimate most defining aspect of our faith is that we hope in jesus's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins And we trust that the resurrection actually happened. We trust that that was a real event that took place. And by that, we have forgiveness and a right relationship with God. And we get this from God's word because obviously none of us were there. And so we hope in God's word and we put our trust in God's word. And the reason why this is important, right? Because we don't see God visibly. No one has seen God. We don't see our spiritual condition visibly. We can have things that might indicate that it's true, but we don't see that. We don't see heaven, or we don't see hell physically. We don't see the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ visibly, but we trust that it really happened, and we're putting our hope in Jesus to forgive us our sins. There's a passage that really uh, defines this in a very, very clear way. This is a summary, basically, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 4-9, Sums this up perfectly. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in offenses, made alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved. And he raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Right here, for by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we can do them. Y'all, the Bible is clear that if you want to know what do we hope for, what do we trust, it's that faith is a gift from God. That's what it is. It's trusting that, yeah, I'm a sinner, right? I am dead spiritually and eternally apart from anything that that God has done in my life. But because I believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, I have new life. It's the whole reason why we celebrate Easter. That is the entire reason that we get together on Sunday morning and celebrate that the resurrection actually happened because it means that because Jesus has new life, we have new life. We have forgiveness from our sin, And it's the core of what it means to be a Christian. And the reason why we have to start there is because if we begin to think, man, this is just what I need to do. Like, I just need to have more faith in God. I just need to kind of clean up my life and I just need to figure out how to trust God more. We miss the whole point because it says it's a gift from God. And we have to get that right first. And then it says, then we live in the created works that God has for us to do. After we have faith in Christ, then we go out and we learn what it means to actually follow him. And so as an example of actually following and living out our faith in Christ, we are going to look at the life of Abel. Okay, by a show of hands, who here knows the story of Cain and Abel? Right? Good. That's a really good percentage. Uh, Hebrews 11.4 recaps the whole story in about two sentences. So I figured it would be good if we just went back and refreshed our memories a little bit on what that story's like. Uh, The story of Abel is found in Genesis 4. I would encourage you to read it later tonight. We're not going to go through it right now. But here is a quick Spark Notes version. So Adam and Eve, they have introduced sin into the world, which was a very big bummer. And then God banishes them from the Garden of Eden. That was the understatement of the century. And Adam and his wife have two sons. They have Cain, who is a farmer. He grows fruits and vegetables. And we have Abel, who's a shepherd. He raises sheep. And these are just two ordinary dudes, right? Farmer, shepherd, they're not, they're not super talented in different ways, they're just regular people just like us. And at some point, God calls them to bring a sacrifice to him. And Cain brings some fruits and veggies, but it says, Abel brings the best of his flock. And God is pleased with Abel, but he's not pleased with Cain. And so Cain, he gets angry and he begins to throw a fit and God goes and he warns him and he says, Cain, sin is dangerous. It wants to consume you. But Cain doesn't listen to God. And he calls his little brother out into the field. And he kills his brother Abel. And Abel is actually the first death recorded in human history. And he's regarded as a man who died for his faith in God. And Hebrews 11.4 is going to give us three examples of what faith looked like in action in Abel's life. Let's reread Hebrews 11:4. It says, "By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, and through his faith he was commended as righteous, because God commended him for his offerings, and through his faith he still speaks though he's dead." Y'all, the three things that we're going to look at tonight about Abel's faith, number one: faith sacrifices greatly. Number two, faith pleases God, and number three, faith always speaks. Point number one, faith sacrifices greatly. Let me, uh, let me paint a nice picture for you here. All right, imagine that you are going out to dinner with your significant other, right? We just finished our relationship series. So this is like our last jab at relationship advice right now. Um, you know, you finished up the casual, like get to know you type dates. And you're thinking like, hey, we wanna do something big. Like we wanna go out, we wanna drop some money on this. We wanna get dressed up. We wanna, we wanna, we wanna do it big right? So you guys imagine this, imagine yourself and some of you guys are like, I'm trying not to imagine that, Nick. It's making this very hard. But let's say you're you're wanting to go fancy, right? You're thinking rooftop restaurant on the plaza, shout out Prime Social. They're not one of our sponsors, but maybe. (laughs) Another great place is the Silo Modern Farmhouse down the road. Great fancy restaurant. If you're looking to take someone there, just dropping some hints. Hey, ladies, How would you feel, right, you get all dressed up, you're feeling good, you got your nice outfit on, your date outfit, and the guy shows up at your door with a half-empty box of deli meats and an old loaf of bread. And he's like, hey, this is our dinner. This is what I had left over from the week. And you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not getting in the car with you. We're not going anywhere. Fellas, how would you feel You cleaned out your car, right? You got all the different uh, boxes of Chick-fil-A and Culver's out of your car for this date. You got dressed up. You actually ironed your shirt, right? Maybe you just used the fabric wrinkle releaser. I don't know. But you did that, and you show up at the girl's house to pick her up, and 30 minutes goes by, an hour goes by, an hour and a half goes by, and finally, after two hours, She comes out and she says, oh, sorry, I was just finishing up a Netflix series. You can have the rest of my night though. Man, that would sting. You'd probably leave by that point, I don't know. But like, you were so eager for this. Ladies, you got dressed up, right? You were so eager to go out on this date. Guys, you did all the work to prepare. You called ahead and you made reservations. You were willing to drop $100 on this date. And they just gave you whatever was lying around. They just gave you the leftovers right that would feel bad that does not feel good and that would just be wrong and why would that be wrong it's because you thought that the relationship was more valuable than that and this is the picture that we get with Cain and Abel it says by faith Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain In Genesis 4, it says, At the designated time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground for an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought some of the firstborn of his flock, even the fattest of them. I think we have those verses up on the screen. Cain just brought some of the fruit. Right? But Abel brought the best of his flock. And I think we can kind of look at that and think, man, why did God... Just like Abel's and not Cain's. I mean, they both brought something, right? Like they were both just trying to sacrifice to God. Isn't that what counts? And the Bible would say no, that isn't what counts. It's not just trying to do some kind of sacrifice. It's evident that Abel brought the best of what he had, he didn't bring leftovers, he didn't hold anything back for himself. Cain, however, he just grabbed whatever was laying around. He had already enjoyed the best of everything for himself. And he thought, oh, God was just an afterthought. Why? Because Cain didn't have faith that God was worth it. Cain didn't believe that God was worth it, but Abel did. See, Abel, he believed that God was so worth this. He looked at the best part of his work. He looked at those sheep that he had raised and that he had bred, and that he had fed, and he had protected. And he said, the best of those sheep, that is what my relationship with God is worth. That's what it's worth to me. And Cain shows up, and the fact that his offering is not good, shows that he does not really believe that his relationship to God is all that valuable. And he doesn't trust that God's worth it. And I think one of the dangers here is that we kind of see God is this unfair judge, right? Who's just trying to stir up competition or he's just picking favorites. He's just trying to cause conflict between these two brothers. And y'all, that could not be farther from the truth. God's word says that God hates favoritism. He says that he rewards all who earnestly seek him. He hates dishonesty. He hates unfair treatment. The issue here, it's not with God. It's not what God did or did not want. The issue here is with man, Abel trusts in God while Cain does not. Abel gives his best while Cain gives his leftovers. And y'all, another danger is that we begin to see this as some kind of transaction, right? That we just need to show up and if if these guys just worship God, then God will give them some kind of a reward. This is not an exchange of goods and services. This is not them just trying to do something so that they can get a blessing on their life and do whatever they want, This is worship to God. Abel sees what he has, the best of his flock, and he says, man, God is so good. This is how I want to worship him. I want to give him a generous and joyful heart. I want to sacrifice greatly out of my faith in how good God is. And so the question for us then is, do we give God the best part of our life? Or do we just give him our leftovers? Do we worship God and do we sacrifice to God with our best? You know, God, He's not asking for his followers to sacrifice sheep anymore. But he is asking for our worship in all parts of our life. He's asking us to honor him and worship him with everything that we do. That means in our job, in our love life, in our free time, God is asking for our best. And if God doesn't get your best, it means that you don't trust that he's worth your best. If you're asking, what what does this look like practically? I don't know, what what could it look like for us to give God the best of our finances? Are we we generous with our paycheck for the things of God because we want to worship God and we're excited about it? Or do we just wait till the end of the month and think, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a few dollars in I'll help someone out, maybe. We're called to be cheerful givers. What does it look like to give God the best of our time? When you have free time, is there an eagerness to go and spend time with God or to use your time for the things of God or serve other people? Because the goal of worship is to desire God in everything that we do. What does it look like to give God the best of our mind? Do, do we think about God, or is he more of an afterthought? After I've thought about sports, and after I've thought about my hobbies, and after I've gotten my daydreams in, and after I've worried about my day, then God can have the leftovers. And, and this brings up the question, y'all, because this is hard, right? It's hard to sacrifice greatly. It's why it's called sacrifice. And the question is, why does God ask us to sacrifice greatly? Why on earth should I trust God with my best? And the answer is because God sacrificed greatly for you. God has already given his best to you. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. God loves you that much. He gave you his dearly beloved son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place. And he looked at you and he thought, that's how much you're worth to me. He went all the way in his sacrifice. God has already sacrificed greatly. And so he asks us to give and to sacrifice, not to outdo him, right? Because we could never do that, right? I I can't pay for God's sin because he does not have any. I can't pay for my own sin because it's already been paid for. But I can live my life for God's glory. I can make God the most important relationship in my life. And I can choose to worship him and obey him and do what the Bible calls offering our body as a living sacrifice. It means as we live, we're constantly focused on God. And it's not a transaction. I heard a really wise man ask, are you working for God so he gives you something? Or are you working for God because he's given you everything? Everything. It's, it's the same as a relationship with a person, right? You don't love someone because of what you get out of it. You don't love someone because you think that it's about you. You love them because they're the focus of your heart. And you care about them more than anything else. And in the same way, if God has saved us from our sin and from death, then he is the focus of our hearts. And if we have faith, if we're sure and certain in what we hope for, we will want to sacrifice greatly. And we might just need to remind ourselves of who we're sacrificing for. And y'all, I I think if I can just say this to those of you in the room who are not a follower of Jesus, I just want to say sorry, honestly, on behalf of myself and believers who don't live this out, because this communicates to you all that God is not worth it. This communicates that when we say on Sunday mornings, yeah, God is so great, God is so good, and that we live our life about ourselves, we're not speaking honestly about who God really is. And we're just thinking, yeah, 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 you should follow God, you should worship God, but just, he's not really that worth it. He's kind of just worth your leftovers. And it, it doesn't convey how wonderful God is and how amazing God is. But Abel, he sets the example in this. He sacrifices greatly. And that leads us to point number two. Faith pleases God. Faith pleases God. All right, now, if you know much about Christian history or theology, and if you don't, that's okay, but this one might send a couple shivers up your back. Like, you don't, you don't like hearing this. This is not always a popular thought, because words like legalism or licentiousness, big words, but those might get thrown around, and a lot of times Christians can get very un like if you start talking about the idea that based on how we live, God is more or less pleased with us, right? That can be a very unpopular idea, but we're going to dispel both those ideas of legalism and licentiousness really quickly tonight, and we're not going to do that with opinions or arguments, but we're going to do it with God's word. And so legalism, it's this idea that I can earn salvation or I can earn God's love for me by following the law or the legal commands of the Bible. Legalism is where that comes from. Licentiousness on the other side, it means that I treat Jesus' death for me and his forgiveness as a license to live however I want. Licentiousness, it's a license. I can do whatever I want. And we've actually already addressed legalism. Ephesians 28 9 says that it is by grace we're saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not from works so that no one can boast. Right, you cannot earn God's love for you. You can't earn salvation. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. And on the other side, though, for licentiousness, Romans 6, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace could increase? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so it's clear, we can't earn God's salvation. We can't earn God's love for us. But also, if we are saved by Jesus, our life will change. And there will begin to be this transformation in our life. Since we've died to sin's power. And so then the idea then of pleasing God, it's got to mean something different. And this is where the idea of a heavenly reward comes into play. We're not talking about heaven, we're not talking about eternal life, but a heavenly reward. And we're going to see that faith pleases God. Bear with me on this. This is uh, not a commonly known teaching from the Bible, but God's word teaches that everyone in the world will be judged by God on the basis of one thing, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And either you have faith in Jesus or you don't. But then everyone who does have faith in Jesus, so everyone who is a believer, will be judged by Jesus himself. And it's not for your sin. He's not judging you for your sin or, or out to punish you but he's going to test your faithfulness. And he's gonna ask, what did you do with the gift of faith that was given to you? How did you live in those created works that I prepared for you? And to help illustrate this, here's an example. Imagine that there's a good dad, right? Just imagine a really wholesome good dad and he leaves his two teenage kids at home and he asks them to do a couple chores as he's going around the house. And he says, while I'm gone, you guys gotta get these done. And then he says, if you do this, there will be a reward. Maybe the reward is like season chief's tickets. Maybe it's a, a, a Lululemon gift card. You know, maybe it's a gift card to a great restaurant. I don't know what it is, but um, you can put whatever reward you want, whatever would motivate you to do your chores when you were a kid. And so the daughter, right, she's, she's hardworking and she gets to work and she cleans her room and she does all the dusting and she starts vacuuming and she goes above and beyond to make the house look nice. And the son, he goes back downstairs and gets on Xbox and keeps playing Harry Potter Legacy. Shout out Ravenclaw. Don't, don't email me about that, please, if you don't like Harry Potter. And the dad comes home a few hours later, and he's gonna tell the daughter, great job, I'm so proud of you. And he's gonna give her the reward. And then he's gonna go down to the son and he's gonna ground him and take his Xbox away. Why? It doesn't mean that the son is out of the family. It does not mean that the father does not love the son any less or any more. But it does mean that the dad is not going to reward him for his faithlessness. The, the son didn't have faith in the dad's promise. He didn't desire to please his dad for the reward. In Hebrews 11.4, if you go back to it, it says, By faith Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, And through his faith, he was commended or he was rewarded as righteous because God rewarded him for his offerings or commended him for his offerings. God was pleased by Abel's sacrifice. He gave his best to God and God was happy about this. And Abel received a reward. And now we don't actually know what that reward is. The Bible is unclear on that. But we do know that God is a good father. And whatever it is, it will be be beyond anything that we could imagine when we receive it from Jesus one day. Now, let's go back to the, fo- or the daughter and look at the flip side of it. Let's say that the son, he's the one who does his chores this time. But the daughter, she goes off and instead of dusting and vacuuming and cleaning her room, she decides to paint the house yellow, right? Just some reason, just thinks, man, I'm gonna paint the house yellow, just bright neon yellow. If your house is yellow, no offense at that. I just assume most people don't want their house in neon yellow. And the dad comes home and is just, why is the house yellow? Like, what did you do? And the daughter comes out and she's like, okay, so dad, you know my friend Chloe, right? Chloe, you know, Chloe? And she loves the color yellow, dad. Like she absolutely loves it. And so when I was getting ready to do my chores, I just thought, man, Chloe loves yellow. So I should paint the house yellow because I wanna make Chloe happy because she's my friend. And so I just thought that if I made Chloe happy, then I'd make you happy because Chloe loves yellow. And the dad is like, I did not ask you to paint the house yellow. And her dad isn't pleased. Why? Because the daughter was trying to please someone else. Y'all, the reason why it is so vital that we live to please God, whatever the reward ends up being, is that we are all living to please someone. And either we're going to live to please others, or we're going to live to please ourselves, or we're going to live to please God. And if you live to please others, you will end up enslaved to the thoughts and opinions of everyone else around you. And you'll live in constant insecurity, constant competition to make your life seem perfect. And you will run yourself ragged trying to make everyone love you. And because you are conforming to everyone else's standards, you will never be fully known and you'll never feel fully loved. Because everyone else around you is imperfect. They cannot love you like God does. And if we live our lives trying to please them and not God, we'll never feel true love. We'll never experience it. And it's a terrible life to live that way. And if you try to live to please others and you find that that fails, you might try to live to please yourself. And this is actually my story. When, when I was in high school and early college, I learned pretty quickly that I did not want to care about what other people thought about me. Whether because people were mean to me or because people were imperfect, I realized, man, I I don't really want to care. And that led me to try to play God in my own life. And I decided, man, I'm going to make the rules. I'm going to make life about Nick Swearingen. I am going to be the center of my universe. And so I would do things like if someone would compliment me, I would genuinely get angry at them. And I'd be like, you can't tell me about myself. You don't know me. You don't get to define who I am. Only I define myself. You can't tell me about me. And I would live selfishly, and I would try to do whatever I want, and all my friendships began, started to become about me, and all my relationships started to become about me. And I just thought, man, whatever I need to do to make myself happy, I'm going to do it. And I began to grow so bitter towards other people and arrogant and selfish, and deep down, although I would have never admitted it at the time, I was desperately alone and I was searching for love. And it was not until I understood the gospel of Jesus Christ that God loved me freely, God loved me first. That's when I began to realize I don't live for myself anymore. I don't need to live for the opinion and the approval of other people. I live to please God because he already loved me. And slowly since then, God has been using that to wipe away the insecurity and wipe away the selfishness and the pride because I, I don't care as much what other people think. And I don't care if I have a good opinion about myself. I care what God thinks about me. And I look to his word and what he says and who he says that I am, and I let God define me, and I let God outline what faithfulness looks like in my life. It's a tough battle. It's a battle every single day. But it's a much better life than pleasing myself or pleasing others. 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul outlines this. He says, one should think about us this way. This is how people who are followers of Jesus should be thought of. As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, what is sought in stewards is that one be found faithful. If you entrust something to someone, you want them to be faithful with it. If you entrust money to a money manager, you want them to be faithful with it. And he says, so for me, it's a minor matter that I'm judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not acquitted because of this. I'm not free just because I have a a clear conscience. The one who judges me is the Lord. So then, don't judge anything before the time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the motives of the heart. Then each will receive recognition or reward or approval from God. And so we see that God is a judge. And again, this is not judging based off of our actions or our sin, He's judging us in the same way that you would judge a faithful servant or a faithful steward, that you said, man, that person's doing a really good job. Just like the dad judges how well his son and how well his daughter did in fulfilling their tasks and fulfilling their chores. And we begin to see, man, if I just live in faithfulness to what God has outlined, then I can be confident that despite, it's not about being perfect, it's about what's in my heart. He says, one day God will come and he will reveal the motives in your heart. And if we just think, man, God, I, I don't do it perfectly, but I just wanna follow you. I just wanna make you proud. God sees that and he recognizes that. And he says, one day he's going to reward it. And God is inviting us to be free from the approval of man and free from playing our own God. And he invites us to live by faith in a way that pleases him. And what do we see pleases God in the story of Abel? it's Abel's sacrifice. So we give our best to God, not out of compulsion, not trying to earn his love, but because we're hoping for a reward from a loving father who's already given his best to us. And this brings us to point number three. Faith always speaks. Looking back at Hebrews eleven four, it says, by faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, And through his faith, he was commended as righteous, because God commended him for his offerings. And through his faith, he still speaks, though he is dead. Hey, take a moment, y'all. I want you guys to shout out what you believe is the greatest food. Just shout it out. What you believe is the greatest food? Barbecue. Barbecue, okay. Chick-fil-A. Jimmy John's number nine. Give me one more. Someone loud and proud ice cream okay man those are some good foods all right i bet hey everyone get that favorite food in your mind right you get that you're thinking about it right now you're starting to get a little hungry getting ready for chick-fil-a i bet you probably if you're really passionate about this food i bet you tell people about it often right because you believe it's really good we we love to tell people what we believe is truly good don't we And can I just ask you guys the question, if we believe God is truly good, who are we telling about it? Who hears from us that we believe God is good? If we're a follower of Jesus, and we're sure of our hope in heaven, and we're certain that God is real, who do we tell? Abel's faith, right, he he lived it out. It was an example. He, He demonstrated it by his actions. But the Greek word in this passage, that he still speaks, it literally means to emit a sound. It's, it's used in the Bible to talk about speaking aloud. And the idea conveyed here is that because Abel died and he couldn't speak about God, his death is actually what's speaking now. And it's why God includes him in Scripture So that as an example, Abel's faith is still making sounds. Even to this moment right here as we are reading God's word, Abel's faith is still speaking. It's still making sound through other people. And this idea is that we speak about what we believe in. Paul says the exact same thing to the early church in Thessalonica. He says, the Lord's message rang out from you. It made noise. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which is in modern day Greece. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. And so the question is for us is, is our faith known? Do do the people at our jobs know that we are followers of Jesus? Do the friends that we have know that we have faith in Christ? Do we identify publicly that yes, I trust God and I believe in God? If If you're curious, you probably know a little bit If you know anything about Christianity, you might have heard the term baptism. This is what baptism is. It's what it symbolizes. It's a public profession of faith in Christ. And now we we do it in churches and we do it kind of outside of the public sphere. But in that day, in Jesus' day, if you got baptized, you were publicly saying, I follow Jesus. And that was something that you could be killed for. That was something that you could literally be put to death by the Roman government for, for being a follower of Jesus. But people were still getting up and they're saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't care who knows, I'm going to talk about it because I can't help it. And y'all, I'm not going to tell you a specific way to talk about your faith. I'm not going to tell you a specific way to share the gospel. You can use any number of methods, you can share your story, you can use any verses, We're not not here to define. There's no correct way to do this. But if you are a follower of Jesus, what you cannot do is keep silent. Faith always speaks. Peter and John, they were two of Jesus' closest friends and followers. After they had seen Jesus be brutally killed and then brought back to life, they very quickly, just a couple weeks after this, they said this when they were pushed to stop telling other people about their faith in their Savior. They said, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They couldn't help it. It just overflowed out of their lives. They were willing to sacrifice their comfort, and they were willing to sacrifice their reputation. In fact, John lost his brother to this. Peter lost his wife shortly before he was killed. Just like Abel did. But they had this faith in God that said, do whatever you want for me, but you are too good for me to not praise you. Do whatever you want, God. Use me however you want to, but I believe that you are so good that I believe you're the best thing in the world and there's nothing that can stop me from speaking about that to other people. And it doesn't mean that we're pushy. It doesn't mean that we have to be obnoxious about it, but we just tell people about the hope that we have in Jesus. And say, man, can I tell you about the way that God transformed my life and how good that is for me? And I know that that's intimidating. I really do. One of my roles here at the church is that I am a pastor of evangelism. It is literally my job to train people to share their faith. And I still get nervous about this all the time. In fact, today I was going and sharing with a young adult who she's struggling with alcoholism and I was really nervous about it. I knew I needed to tell her about my faith in Christ, but I was nervous. And she even knew that we were gonna talk about it. Why? Because I don't want to be disliked. I don't want to be out of my comfort zone. And that's when I'm reminded I don't live to please others anymore. I don't live for myself anymore. Faith pleases God and faith sacrifices greatly. And God honored Abel's sacrifice as his sheep. God honored Abel's life as a sacrifice, and if you will trust him, and you'll speak out about your faith in Jesus, God will honor you too. And so to recap, does your faith sacrifice greatly? Are you living to please God? And does your faith always speak? I think for so many of us, this is where probably in the room, we realize, man, I don't feel like I have enough faith. The fears of the world or the fears of the future or the fears of other people, I just feel paralyzed. I feel like I'm frozen on the wall. My faith is not big enough for God's call on my life. And as the band comes back up, I want to close with a story from God's word that will give us hope. In the gospel of Mark chapter 9, Jesus was going town to town and there was this man who had a son who was demon-possessed. And at times, the, the son would be thrown by this demon into the fire, and the demon would try to burn him alive. And at other times, the, the demon would try to throw this son in the water and try to drown him. And the son was constantly having convulsions and epilepsy and seizures at all times. And this demon was torturing this child, and the dad was helpless to do anything. And he was watching his son suffering in so many ways. And the disciples were going out, and they were beginning to heal people. And so the the, the dad hears about this, and he brings the son along. And the disciples, they try to do something about it, but they can't. They're unable to. And so the disciples, they bring the the dad, and they bring the son, and they bring him to Jesus— And the dad just starts talking. This is what's happening. And the demon, he keeps throwing my son in the fire and he keeps throwing my son in the water and there's nothing that can be done about this. And he just says, God, please, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And then Jesus looks at him and he sees, man, this guy doesn't really have any faith. He's just like, if you can help us, I don't know. And so Jesus responds and he says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And in that moment, the father has a, a choice. He can choose to look at his small faith that's not big enough and he can go away discouraged knowing that, that God won't do anything. But instead, he turns And he says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that faith is a gift from you. God, I cannot do anything to increase my own faith. And so God, we just pray just like the boys, Father, God, help us overcome our unbelief. God, for the person in this room that doesn't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would give them faith to believe in you for the forgiveness of their sins. God, I pray for the person in here that's struggling. God, would you give them faith to trust that you are good and that even though it hurts, even though they feel like they don't have anything, God, give them the faith to sacrifice greatly because you love them. God, give us the faith to speak boldly about you and how great you are. God, I don't want to have a small faith but I can't do anything about it. So God, we just pray just like the boy's father. We do believe, help us overcome our unbelief. And God, as we're singing, would we be reminded of your faithfulness? As we're speaking with each other tonight, God, would we be honest about where we're at in our faith? And would we look at you and just say, God, we need you. Just like Abel did, And just like we can do tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.